Amen, church. You can be seated this morning. You know that song comes and flows out of one of what is called the Psalms of Ascent in the Old Testament. And so one of the Psalms that uh, the Israelites, um, and, and in the first summer that I was here, I preached through the Psalms of Ascent, and one of the Psalms speaks to this idea, and one of the psalmists, when he is um, uh, thinking in terms of coming and gathering and getting near towards Jerusalem, looked to the mountains, because the mountains reminded God's people, and they were there to remind God's people of God's presence and protection around them. And so that's where that song kind of flows out of. And so we're reminded of the faith that God has given us and uh, that we don't have an empty faith in the sense that we say, you know, I hope it rains or I have faith it's going to rain. We have no idea. But what we do know is that God is a God who is there and he is a God who uh, we can believe in and we can trust in and that's why we pray and that's why we sing and that's why we do the things that God calls us to do because we have been filled with all of this incredible work that God's done in our hearts and that it flows out of our hearts in the, in the presence of or in the, uh, the ways of faith and obedience and all of the things that God calls us to and leads us to in our lives. So we're going to look at God's word this morning in Joshua chapter 10 in a moment. Um, but before you turn there, I want to pray for us. I want to ask God to just bless our time together in his word. He's got a word for us this morning, just as he does every Sunday. And I say this kind of from time to time, but I want to say it to you this morning again, and just to remind us, you know, long before I bring God's word to us, God has already brought his word to me. And so I've already God's already preached the sermon to me all week long. <laughs> and so every time I, I preach a sermon, the power is not in the words that I say. The power is always in the word of God to transform and change our hearts and our lives. And so God does that work in me. He does that work in us collectively. And so let's just gather our hearts for prayer. Let's ask God to, uh, to bless our time together in his word. Father, as we come to you this morning, we thank you. We thank you for the ways in which you have already manifested uh, your presence among us by way of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, not just for the music, but for the tangible evidence of life change in the lives of two that were um, baptized this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the fact and the reality, Lord, that following you is not something that is simply inward, but it is an outward expression so that others can see, so that others can know, so that others can hear that, Lord, you are worthy of worship, you are worthy of being followed, you are worthy of being obeyed. Lord, we love you this morning, not because you've given us stuff, not because you've done things for us, but because of who you are. We've been singing about that this morning. We've been singing, Lord, during this season in which we celebrate the resurrection of your son, Jesus, that you are a God who, Lord, cares deeply for us. You're a God who is holy. You're a God who is perfect. You're a God who is so unlike us. And you give us, Lord, your word to hear and to see who you are. And you give us just enough to, Lord, be, and to understand who you are. We see who you are in your word. We see who you are in creation. We are a people that are recipients of a God who has revealed himself to us. And so we are not in the darkness. We're not sitting here wondering who you are. We're not sitting here this morning and kneeling before you this morning and praying to a God that we don't understand or know. We do know you. 
We can know you. We can understand who you are because your word tells us who you are. And so this morning, we thank you. We thank you for the promised presence of yourself here with us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that your spirit is what unites us, that is here with us this morning. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for living and indwelling in our hearts. That we do not approach you from a distance, but you dwell in us. And that we don't understand. God, we don't have an understanding of how that happens. But we believe it. We believe it based on what we have read and believed in. We believe it based on how our lives have changed and are changing and being transformed into the image of Jesus. We do understand and believe in that understanding and that truth because we look to other people and we see how they once were. We see how, Holy Spirit, you are changing their hearts and their minds and they are bearing the spiritual fruit that you promise us. And so it is evidence, tangible evidence of not just what we read, but what we see and what we hear and what we know as convictionally deep down inside of our hearts. We believe in you, God. And we thank you this morning for your Holy Spirit. And we just pray this morning that, Spirit of God, that you would speak to us, move in us, open our hearts, God. What is a barrier in blocking you from working and speaking into our hearts. God, would you, would you take those things away? Would you remove those things? That we would confess those things to you now, that we would repent of those things now. And God, that you would keep us pure and clean, give us clean hands and a pure heart. Lord, would you cleanse these things from us so that our ears would be open, that our eyes would be open, that we would hear and see your will and pray that will into reality, God that we would follow through with obedience in our lives. Manifest your presence among us, God. Oh God, we need you. We need you. Yes, our nation needs you. Yes, our schools need you. Yes, other people outside of these walls need you, but we need you. We desperately need you to stir our hearts, to work in us, to move in us, God, to bring us to a place where we come to the end of ourselves, And Lord, we are filled with you, our Holy Spirit that lives in us. We would not obey the sins of the flesh, that we would follow you, Holy Spirit, that we would be fully and completely surrendered to you. So God, do this work in us. We sing about faith. We sing about foundations. And we sing about mountains, God. We sing about these things. God, help us to believe them. Lord, put these things in our hearts. Give us a deeper and flourishing faith in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you that, God, you enable us. You provide these things for us so that we don't just sing them. We don't just say them. We can believe them. And we no longer have to doubt about them. You solidify these things deep into our hearts. Moving us now as we look into your word. We thank you for your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles with me and turn to Joshua chapter 10. In Joshua chapter 10, verse 29, you can see we're going through the end of chapter 11, and I can assure you we're not going to read all of those verses this morning. But I am going to summarize what God wants to say to us. Listen, you know, it is spring, and uh, 
it, although it doesn't feel like it, this is probably my last time of the year to wear a sweater, but I dug it out of the drawer in the, uh, in the chest of drawers. Um, but it is spring, it's about to be spring, and all of a sudden, uh, it's going to get warm and hot and all of that good stuff that we love here in Texas so much. Um, but you know, in the spring, uh, for our family, we have a family of six, of four boys, two in college now, two at home, but um, we have traditionally been a spring sports family. I didn't grow up that way, but our family is, and so... We've been into baseball and track and those kinds of sports, especially um, in the spring. Um, we love track. We've always been around track, and uh, boys run track. And, and I'll just say something about track for a moment, because, you know, in track, when, you know, we really boil down track, it's really just running and what else? Jumping. It's what else? Throwing, if you're in the field events, throwing the shot put, throwing the discus. It, it really comes down to running. It, it really comes down to jumping. It really comes down to throwing and those kinds of things. At the end of the day, when it comes to track, it's really not about those things. What it is about is the destination. And the destination of all of that hard work of running and jumping and throwing, all of those things that you're doing, gets to the point of the destination, the true destination, is that the hopes to stand on that medal stand or receive a medal or to have that PR, that personal record. Beat your own record before. Um, or you beat the person around you. Maybe you've been competing against that student or that, that kid for some time and then you finally beat him. Like that's, that's the, the goal. It's all about the destination and everything else is getting you to the destination. This morning, you know, when you think about God's people here in Joshua, it really is about the destination. What, the, what God is doing, his work, is a leading to this spiritual destination. Let me say this to you this morning. Let me ask you this question. I asked myself for this question this past week. What am I to do with the life God gives me? What are you to do with the life God gives you? When I mean life, I'm not talking about you being born a baby and you're growing up and now you're whatever age you are. I'm talking about the spiritual life God has given you. Well, what are you to do with the blessings that God has poured into your life? Like, what is the spiritual destination? Is it to get you to sit in a seat this morning or to enjoy some heat or air conditioning or the class that maybe you attended this morning or that 11 o'clock class? What? what what is, what is God trying to do? It's the spiritual destination that God is trying to take you to. God does all that he does in Jesus, what he does by way of giving you a church family, a true family who is around you, who's not afraid to speak truth into your life, to hold you accountable, but also to encourage you through this real challenging and difficult world. When God is pouring out, as the book of Ephesians says in Ephesians 1, all these spiritual blessings, you can just read those verses at the beginning of that chapter, and it's incredible what God has done, how he's both sent his son into the world to do something that we could never do for ourselves. He is the answer to life. He gives me purpose, destined. He gives me uh, purpose in life. He gives me uh, reason and, and, and meaning in life. He leaves his Holy Spirit that is at work in us right now, that is work in us in this very room. And he does all of that. What is the spiritual destination that he's trying to lead us to? That's the question we're going to answer this morning. That's the question I think God answers for us out of this text. 
I want to tell you the story of what's happened up to this point, and we're going to just summarize here at the end of chapter 11 and what's going on here. This is, of course, the end of a, the second major section of the book of Joshua, okay? Um, think about where we've been and where we're going. At the end of chapter 11 is the conclusion. If you just turn over to chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, it says, so Joshua took the whole land according to all the that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. It's the second, it's the end or the conclusion, rather, of the second largest or big section of Joshua. And that verse that we just read really summarizes everything that's happened up until this point. The first 11 chapters of the book of Joshua. There are three big movements in Joshua to help us understand the big picture of the book that we're walking through on Sundays. You have the preparation or the entrance phase that gets them to the Jordan River. They cross the Jordan River. Then you have the conquest phase that began at Jericho, and that is where we currently are now in Joshua 10, but it concludes in Joshua 11, and the rest of the book of Joshua is all about the allotment of the land. What parts of the land do the tribes, this particular tribe or that particular tribe of Israel receive, that inheritance that they're going to receive. And so here at the end of chapter 10, going into chapter 11, we're in the midst of this conquest, and that's the key phrase here. The key phrase, at, rather, is at the very end of, of chapter 11, verse 23, and the land had rest from what? War. That's the destination. God brings them to this place. The focus had been, up to this point, the city-states, and now there is this detailed summary at the end of chapter 10 and 11. Up to this point, we're learning about, you know, Ai and Gibeon and Jericho. We're learning about these different city-states, but all of a sudden, things speed up at the end of chapter 10 through chapter 11. It's just like boom, 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 boom. The land had rest from war. What's God doing through that? I mean, if you, if you read your Bible before, if you come to the book of Joshua and you're reading through it and you're like, oh, I'm learning all about Jericho. Oh, oh I'm learning all about Ai and their failure. And then they succeed and then they move on. And then I'm learning about the failure that they have at Gibeon. And they enter into this peace treaty that they shouldn't have entered into to begin with. And then the very next chapter, they got to go defend these people that they were supposed to destroy to begin with. And all of a sudden, bam, 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 bam. Land had rest from war. Why? Why does God all of a sudden speed up here? Why does the Spirit of God write this, just put this, here for us? It's a good question. Well, the point that God's trying to make for us just in these verses is that they control all of Canaan. That's the point that he's trying to make. The Lord gives them rest from war, gives them rest from their enemy. I want you to walk with me through these few verses. Take a look at verse 29 of chapter 10. Put it there on the screen for us this morning. And Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. Once again, God gives them this great victory. He had given them this great victory up and even until this point. He extended the night, remember, when they're defending Gibeon? I mean, a three-night journey was extended to where they could all get there in one night, God's people the holy warriors of God, these men who, who came to the defense of Gibeon. But not only did God do that, he rains hail down from heaven, kills more people who are trying to fight Israel than Israel can fight themselves with their swords. But he wasn't done, right? He made 
the sun stands still and in his, because he is the God of creation, right? He makes creation. He can do whatever he chooses to do so. And, and he chooses to, to make the sun stand still and the longest day the world has ever seen. And so that they could have this incredible victory. And now what happens here at the end of chapter 10, verse 29 on, is the conquest, if you will, of the southern part of Canaan. Think in terms of when God's people come in uh, and cross the Jordan River, they come in somewhat in the middle, Gilgal and right in that region where Jericho is, is kind of in the middle, on the northern part of the Dead Sea. But it kind of splits Canaan into a northern part and a southern part. And the northern part is there, and the southern part is here, and here in verse 29 south, uh, 29 to the end of the chapter, what God's people do, and Jer- Joshua does, is they turn their sights on the south. So they've come in and they've split it into half. Now they're going to turn their sights on the south, which is where we pick up here in verse 29, when he says, Joshua and all of Israel passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. They're turning south. And so here comes the conquest of the southern part of Canaan. This was the key to spiritual victory because here's the thing, every battle was a test of obedient faith. Listen, every season in the life of our church, every season in your personal life is a test of obedient faith. God puts before you, he puts before me these crossroads in our lives daily, weekly, seasonally, in the life of a church, in the life of a people, in a life of an individual, in a life of a couple, in a life of a family. Are you going to choose to follow me and do things my way or are you going to choose things to go your way? Are you going to follow just your own personal preferences? Are you just going to follow your own heart, follow your own way, follow your own wisdom? If you do so, things will not go well for you. But if you choose to follow my way, if you take me up on my offer, if you choose obedient faith, things will go well for me or for you, and I'll be glorified. And this is the test that God puts before his people day in and day out, season after city, city after city before the people. And the key to spiritual victory is obedient faith. So look down at verse 36. And Joshua and all of Israel with him went up from Eglon and Hebron, and they fought against it. They continue to capture, and they devote destruction to destruction, everything. Look at verse 37. And captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and the king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. And look down at verse 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that had breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. How do they do this? Because the Lord fights for his people. God's already gone ahead of them. God's disarming their enemies. God's bringing about these victories before they even get there. They're just simply following in obedient faith. What God wants them to do, they're doing. And they're doing it on behalf of the Lord. And God's bringing about the victory. And so the south is taken. And what do they do? They return north. Back in verse 43, look at it. Then Joshua returned and all of Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So they had crossed the Jordan, they had camped to this place called Gilgal, right near Jericho, where they had taken, and then they took Ai and so forth. They had turned south, now they come back, now they're at Gilgal. You with me? The beginning of chapter 11, now they set their sights on the north. You see, word had spread in chapter 11, word had already spread to the northern city-states. And so check out verse 1. 
When John, or Jabin rather, king of Hazor heard of this, he sent to Jobab, the king of, of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshath. And on and on he goes. And what happens here is there is a coalition that begins to form, that develops. Isn't this the pattern we see in Canaan? God's people will come, they realize that if Jericho could not take them head on, if Ai could not take them head on, then let's begin to, to coalesce together. Let's begin to bring together multiple city-states and have this kind of coalition to fight against Israel because they have God on their side, and so that's what they begin to do. And so, word's spreading, and they develop this coalition, but look at verse 4. And notice the detail that God here puts for us. And they came out with all of their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. Look at verse 5. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together in the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. I mean, God is fighting for them. Look at verse 7. So Joshua and all the warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And look at the top of verse 8. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. God fights for his people. When you simply step out in faith and do the things God wants you to do, God fights for his people. Nothing can stand in the way. There is victory. So much victory that look at verse 15. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and all of its lowland. Then on and on it goes. Look at verse 18. Joshua made war a long time with all these kings, and there was not a city that, that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of, the, of Judah, and from the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left to the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. And then we come back to the very verse we read a moment ago. So Joshua took the whole land, south, north, central, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. They take the whole land. They have this rest from war. They have rest for enemies. And I want you to think about this for a moment. For the very first time, God's people are no longer wanderers. They had no home in Egypt. They had no home in the middle of the desert. They have no home as they're wandering around, as they come to Mount Sinai, as they continue on. They they have no home. But here, for the very first time, God is giving them what he's promised them back with, with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, right? He's promised them this inheritance. He's giving them this home. 
There was fighting left to do, certainly. And the, the Lord shows us that in the Word of God, that, that there are still fighting pockets that they have not finished and completed yet, but there's fighting left to do. But for now, God has given them rest. rest. So what now? What's next? Have you ever asked that question? When God does something big for you, and when God does something big when it, comes to, when it comes to pouring into your life the spiritual blessings into your life, when God does this work in your life, then, then he brings you to this place of, ah, yes, I found what I've been looking for. I found what I wasn't looking for, but God found me. And he brings you to that kind of crossroads in your life. All this work that God has done for you, what now, what next? God's people are here. They have rest from war. They have not had this before. All of this blessing. This was not, by the way, about dirt. This was not about this place in which God would take his people. This wasn't about material possessions. This wasn't about gold or silver or, or, or a land flowing with milk and honey. This wasn't about dirt. This was about God's possession, his people. This was about God's people being his people, and having his undivided attention. What God was doing is what God does when he saves you and he saves me. He blesses you. He blesses his church with a spiritual victory. Why? Because he's leading this to a spiritual destination. Listen, church, we need to understand what God says to us out of this this morning. Is that God's victories lead to holy living. God's victories lead, they propel us to holy living. That we're to live a different way. We're to speak a different way. We're to live as a people that are different and distinct. And this is what God's doing in Joshua with his people. Let's think about the destination for a moment with Israel. Think about this with me. Because up until this point with the story, all along, the destination has not been about Canaan. It wasn't about just this land. It wasn't about, by the way, because Deuteronomy points this out. It wasn't as though the, the God's people were not just loved by God, but they were really good people. And, and because they were really good people in Egypt, God really felt sorry for them. And so God takes this people out of Egypt. He splits the Red Sea, brings them into the wilderness, and, and he raises up a second generation. He splits the Jordan River. He brings them into this promised land. It, it, it wasn't because they were really good people. In fact, it was the opposite. The Bible actually says this. In the book of Deuteronomy, God comes to his people and he says, listen, I'm not giving you Canaan. I'm not giving you the promised land because you're good. In fact, this is what he calls his people. You're stubborn. You're a stubborn people. This, this wasn't about land. It, it, it wasn't about uh, the, the destination of gold and silver and, and that they could now <sighs> exhale. It, it wasn't all about that. It was about something God was doing that was deeper and that was more meaningful. He was making and leading his people to holiness. He was creating a people unto himself. And along the way, there's something bigger going on here that's driving the entire story, that's driving the entire narrative. In fact, as I mentioned a moment ago, this call, this word that God comes to Abraham with, who was Abram back in Genesis chapter 2, this is what this is all about. The Lord comes to Abram way, way, way back in the history of Israel. And he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I'm in Genesis 12, 1. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Stay with me. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families 
of the earth shall be blessed. Oh, there's something deeper and more meaningful that God is doing among his people. This wasn't about them being really good. So God says, okay, I want to give you some land. I'm giving you a back 40. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything for it just because you're good people. Oh, you, were, you suffered a whole lot. Your ancestors suffered a whole lot. That second and third generation removed, your great granddaddies, they suffered a whole lot. They were whipped by the Egyptians. And so I'm giving you this land because, you know, you're good people. This has nothing to do with that. This wasn't about land. It wasn't about gold. It wasn't about silver. God had something deeper and more meaningful that he is doing here. No, this second generation God is, doing, is, is working in and is faithful and takes God up on his offer. There is something bigger that God is doing. Leviticus chapter 11. Just listen to these two verses that come from 44 and 45. This is, comes at the end of him talking about uh, uh, what is clean, what is unclean to his people. If you look there, he says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. Look at verse 45. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God's doing something more significant here for his people and with his people. Fast forward here to the story as we're walking through the book of Joshua, as we're walking through thinking about the destination of God's people. When they come to the end of verse 11 and the land has rest from war, there is this now what? What's next? What direction do I take? The result was to be holy. The result was to lead into Holiness. It was to imitate the character of God here on earth, to influence and impact the world itself, to be a blessing to the nations, to, 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 to do this work, to be positioned in such a way that God would do a work in them and through us, through them. Think in terms of our destination. Think about what Jesus Christ has done for you and I. God, this is where God wants to take you and I. Remember, the Lord's fighting for you, right? He invades your life. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, Greater is he who is what? In you, me, you, than he who is what? In the world. God invades your heart. He invades your life. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, he invades your heart. He invades your life. He, he, he comes into, he dwells in your heart. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The, the, the spiritual things the, uh, that are in our culture today that are bombarding us, your own hearts that are pulling you away from God. Greater is he who is in you. You obey the spirit of God. You obey him. You work in, in submitting and surrendering to what he wants in your life. He begins to transform and change you. He is at work in you, right? He does this work in your heart. He does this work in your life. He invades your heart, but he also gives you that spiritual arsenal. We saw it a week ago. He, he provides that spiritual protection. He gives you the tools by which you can be spiritually protected. You struggle with doubt, God's given you these blessings. You, you struggle with all these other things, God has given you all of the spiritual armor that we are to put on. Why? Because there is a spiritual battle going on around you right now. Not tomorrow, not an hour ago. There's a spiritual war and battle that is waging around your mind, your heart, your life right now. 
God knows that. He knew that before he brought you into this world. He knew that before Jesus Christ had transformed and changed your life. In fact, God knows that even now. And he's given you everything to be able to pick up this spiritual arsenal and go to battle. But he doesn't just do those things. He also disarms the enemies. He goes before us. He knows what kind of temptations you're going to fight at 3 a.m., He knows what kind of temptations you're fighting even now or that your marriage is going to go through tomorrow or next year or next week. He knows when your spouse passes away and all of a sudden now you're left alone and you've been married 40, maybe 50, maybe 60 years and now you're dealing with loneliness and you're dealing with doubt and you're dealing with fear. He knows those moments of of, of spiritual weakness that you have in your life and he knows those moments in which Satan is going to attack you. Yes, he will. And he's already gone ahead of you and he's preparing. He's working in your life. He's working around your life. He's fighting for you. This is the way in which he fights for his people. But what's the destination? He saves you, yes. He saves you from death to life. Does he not do that for us? I mean, if you're here this morning and you've not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and he's not your real true Savior and Lord, maybe you really like him, but he's not your Savior and Lord, then you're still what the Bible calls you're spiritually dead in your sins. You're living your life, you're walking in this world, but you have not embraced Jesus as your Savior and Lord then you're in a different place than the majority of us in this room, many of us in this room who have gone from death to life. We've experienced this thing called resurrected life. We've experienced this, the Bible calls living hope that we have, right? But, but, but God doesn't just save us from death to life. Listen to me. What he does in our lives is he saves us, yes, from death to life, but he doesn't just save us from something. He saves us to something. This is what he does. He doesn't just pull us away from ourselves and and bring us to the end of ourselves. Yes, he does this. He wants to do this, and this is what we pray for daily, repeatedly. I have to pray for that in my own life. God, bring me to the end of myself because I really struggle with pride at times. Bring me to the end of my self-dependence, my self-reliance on myself to make decisions in my life, to, to bring, you know, to, to, live life, to do marriage, to do parenting, to lead a church, all of these things bring me to the end of myself because I need you. And he doesn't just do these things to save me from some stuff, but he does this in order to save me to something. And that's holy living. God's victories lead to holy living. I want to show you this in the New Testament because we've seen it from time to time. We sing about it but I want to connect the dots for you this morning. And I want to do some, ask you to do something that I don't normally ask you to do. I want you to hold your place and turn to 1 Peter. Hold your place and turn to 1 Peter in your Bibles with me. Because I want you to see it with your own eyes so that we can understand what God says to us when it comes to the spiritual victories in our life and how they propel us to holy living. I want you to see this in 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Say you're there when you're there. We got a few there's. Some still turning. That's okay. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I'm going to read it for us, and I've got them on the screens above my head in just a few of these verses. But listen to what Peter says to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now think of the tense in which Peter's writing this. The past. 
He's saying in verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We sing that song, Living Hope, right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're in a season of remembering this, right? To an, look at verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Think in terms of what he said. There's this work that God has done in the, light, in the past, but then he gives us this living hope in the present that propels us to live toward the future because we're going to receive this inheritance in the future. But guess what? We don't have that. You and I have not reached that promised land. And so as Christians, we sojourn, we walk through this life, and we struggle at times. We're, 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 we're tempted, and sometimes we fall, and then we get back up, and we confess and repent, and we keep moving forward. And that this is the grace of God, a mercy of God, that God pours out upon our life day after day after day. All of a sudden, though, once we step from this life into eternity, inheritance, promised land. This is what God's doing in us, and he does this work in our hearts and in our lives. So he saves us. He disarms your enemies. He gives you every opportunity to succeed. It's though God then takes your life as broken as you are, as sinner, sinful as it is, and then he saves you, and he redeems you, and then he begins to restore you, and then he moves you forward and propels you to live for him. He's fighting for you now. He's provided every spiritual blessing in your life in order to live the Christian life. It's like you take one step, God's like pushing. And you're taking another step and he's pushing. And this is, the, this is what God's doing. He's working in and around your life, even in the midst of the spiritual battle that is waging war for your mind and your heart and your affections. All of these things are going on around you. But what God says and the good news about the good news of Christ is that, this, that, that the victory has already been won. And so my role and my job is then to continue to take one step in front of the other, and I'm pursuing, I'm intentionally pursuing this holy living that God wants to create in my life. Here's what holy living is. It's simply Christ-likeness, to be like Christ. And so he wants us to live like Jesus, church. When you think in terms of what it says down in verse 13 of 1 Peter, just listen to what it says. Therefore, preparing your Minds for action, being sober-minded, here it is, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Kick them to the curb. Start pursuing and running after Jesus. Verse 15. But as he who called you to be holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you should be holy for I am holy. I mean, this is what God wants for our lives. This is what God enables us to live by in our life. He wants us to live like Jesus. There's two reasons for that. One is because of verse 14. Go back to verse 14, put it on the screens for us. This is what he calls us. What does he call us? You. Obedient what? Children. You don't belong to yourselves anymore. You don't belong to this world anymore. And the family, the primary family that you belong to is not the last name that is in your name. You're now a child of God, and you have a heavenly Father who owns you. He owns your heart. He owns your life. 
He bought and paid for it by the blood and the body of Jesus that was broken and, and his blood that was shed on the cross. He rose from the dead. He owns you. You now have a spiritual father. And he calls you in verse 14, obedient children. So he does this for two reasons. We do this for two reasons. To live like Jesus, we, number one, we carry on the family likeness. Stay with me. We carry on the family likeness. So I walk around and I say, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? I carry now the family name. Our kids growing up, same way with when I was growing up, I carried the family name, which was the name of Hathaway. And whenever I got out of line and my dad had to step in, what I realized and what I understood, not then, but I do now more so, is that what I was doing, yes, was wrong, it was bad if I made a poor decision in my life, but in, in doing so, what I did reflected upon my family and my family name. And it's the same with our kids growing up. I mean, whenever they have mistakes in their life and they step out of line and they have made mistakes in their lives, as all of our kids have done, we lead them to that place of confession and repentance and restoration and through reconciliation, God restores and does this work. But what I did in a negative way is it going to be a reflection on my parents. When I was growing up, what they do is a reflection on me and their mother, myself and our mother, and, and, and this is how it is, the Hathaway name, right? It's that likeness that they carry with them. It's the same when it comes to being a follower of Christ. I carry on the family likeness. So in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, you once belonged to someone else, now you belong to me. As obedient children, don't live that way anymore. Live this way, because I've blessed you with so many things. The beauty of that. And so I understand what God's doing. Not only did, is it about carrying on the family likeness, likeness, but it is also the goal. And the goal is finally, I'm going to be like him. One day, I'm going to be like him. In fact, it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but what we know that when he, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so not only do I carry on the family likeness, but I'm going to, you know, one day the goal is going to be fully like Jesus, holy, perfect in every way. So where do I start with all of this? Well, if I'm going to purpose to live like Jesus, then I think we should look at this in three very quick, practical ways. I'm going to give them to you this morning, okay? Three very quick, practical ways. First of all, think like Jesus. I want to pray and I want to purpose to think like Christ. So how in the world can I do that? Well, look at what it says in Proverbs chapter 4. Look at this verse on the screen. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Think in terms of what it says in Psalm 119, 10 and 11. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. I think like Christ. I purpose to think like him. Philippians chapter four, Paul says this to those of us who worry we're to pray and we're to turn things over to the Lord. We're to think about things that are true and honorable, things that are just. We're to think about those things. 
We're to fill our minds and our hearts with the things that we know to be true. His word. That's how we begin to think like Christ. Here's the second thing. To speak like Christ. Not just to think like Christ, but pray, God, would you help me to speak the way you want me to speak? Look at Psalm 19, verse 14 with me. It says this, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. By the way, that's a prayer. You ought to get your Bibles out and, and, and turn to Psalm 19:14 in your personal devotions and just begin to pray that scripture back to the Lord. God, let the words of my mouth, the things that I think about in my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So I think, think like Christ, I begin to speak like Christ. Christ. And I was in Southeast Texas and would minister and try to influence and work with a lot of men who worked in refineries and they worked in some rough environments at times. And so we'd have lunch or I'd spend time with them maybe at church and I'd talk to them. And one of the things that I would challenge them to do is this. Is some of them came out of rough backgrounds and they worked in rough environments and I would just simply say this. Just don't use profanity. Just Try not using profanity in your everyday work and see what happens. Just take that one little, you don't even have to mention Jesus. Just stop using profanity and watch what happens. And one or two men from time to time would come to me and they would say, hey, I really struggle with that. Man, I'm just around all these guys and they speak these words and they, they're always using this language constantly and I just kind of get pulled into it and this and that. And I said, yeah, I understand. I understand the environment that you work in. Like that. And, he goes, and then that one or two of them from time to time would say, but I did what you told me to do. I tried what you told me to do. And I said, well, how did it, how did it go? You know what they would say to me? Every single time a man would come to me and tell me that they tried this and they did it. What would happen was the men would notice it. They didn't even know they were Christians maybe. But the men would notice it. And they would look at them and they would say, there's something different about you. What is it? Or they would come to them with prayer requests when they would find out that they were Christians. Just very simple, subtle things would change their entire environment of how people viewed them and saw them. Just by doing that one simple thing. Not even sharing the gospel or you know, talking about Jesus in a very public way. But that gave them a platform to be able to do that. How else do we speak like Jesus, where we say truthful things, we speak truthful words to people. Maybe not audibly, but right here. When we're texting, when we're on the social media, we say truthful things, not untruthful things, not half-truth things, not what someone told me, I heard this, did you hear that? Did you hear this? Did you hear this? Did you hear this? And next thing you know, you have no idea what's true anymore. And when we stop and move away from the things like gossip and we move away from things like spreading rumors and all of these things and negative things, then we begin to speak like the Lord Jesus Christ. We use our words to encourage, not discourage. I love to be around people who see life with a glass half full. I'll tell you what really drains my heart and mind, physically and emotionally and spiritually. The Debbie Downers. Sorry if your name's Debbie. But when I'm around people 
that are just negative and down about everything. There's nothing that is good. They can't see good in anything or everything. It's like it absolutely sucks the life out of me. And it's like I come in and I'm like, you know, I want to, I, I want to be, I want people of faith around me. I want people who have glass half full, people who have vision in the sense that they are believing in the things of God. They're, they're seeing what God's doing in this, even though 99% of it is bad, uh, 1% of it is good. And they point to the 1% and say, well, look what God did. I want those kinds of people around me. I want people who speak like Christ around me, who think like Christ around me, but also love like Christ. Love is sacrificial, isn't it? I mean, that's how Jesus taught us. He gave his life for us. Philippians chapter two, verse three, do I have that verse? There it is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, what? Count others more significant than yourselves. That's how we think, how we treat, how we love people. That's the motivation that propels us to treat people differently to treat people the way Jesus Christ treats them. You know what that's naturally going to do? It's going to humble us. When I begin to count others more significant than myself, it humbles me. What am I to do with the things that God has given me, the blessings God has given me? Real quick. Yesterday, we laid to rest a great gentleman in our church, Dr. Lloyd Dickens. Many of you know him. Over the past year, year and a half that I've been your pastor, year and a half now that I've been your pastor, we've seen several great men pass away from our church that served our church faithfully, some of which were deacons, some of which just were godly men. Um, Mr. Dickens was the latest, and so yesterday we were at his memorial service. What a memorial service it was. It was just a service that honored God in every respect. Yes, they honored Dr. Dickens, but they really honored the Lord Jesus Christ there. And it was an incredible, incredible thing to see and hear. I came away from that, like most people, came away from that just simple service with the challenge to live my life for Christ. Because Dr. Dickens, if you knew him, and I had, a sh I, I, I had the honor of being his last pastor, but you know, time with him and spending time with him and having conversations with him, all he wanted to do was know how to help me. He would always say, I've got your back. He would always talk about how we could win people for Christ in Polk County. And he was just a godly man into his 90s. It's the kind of character that I want to have. It's the kind of character that we all should want to have. It's, it's what we want to pursue in life. And so here's the beautiful news in all of this, and we're done. God enables it all. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, I want to read this for us. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us out of his, called us to his own glory and excellent, excellence. God has given you and I the ability to live a godly life. He doesn't come to you and put any kind of unreasonable expectations on you. He has fought for you. He is fighting for you. He provides every spiritual blessing in your life, but he won't make you follow him and pursue holy living. We have to pursue it in our own hearts. And so what now? What next? God's people come to a crossroads at the end of chapter 11. We come to a crossroads in our lives every day. Are we going to follow Jesus Christ or are we not going to follow him? 
Are we going to follow Jesus Christ wholeheartedly in what he wants and allow his Holy Spirit to change us from within? Or are we just going to be content, apathetic, to just live and coast through the Christian life on our way to glory? God has a better plan for you. He has a better plan for me. And that's what he wants to do in your life. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. We're going to have a time where we sing and worship the Lord and respond to his word. This morning, you know, if God is speaking to your heart about giving your life to Jesus Christ, maybe you watched the baptism and uh, God has really been speaking to your heart about um, giving your life to Christ and following through with believers' baptism. I'm going to give you a time that uh, you can come and respond to what he wants in your heart this morning, and that is to give your life to Jesus or to follow through with baptism. Maybe God's speaking to you about joining our church or just confessing sin, or you just need prayer of a particular matter, I'll be here at the front, I'll across the front here, and you just come and tell me and just talk to me about any of those decisions that God might be impressing upon your heart, speaking to you about any particular matter. These areas here at the front is always open for you to come and pray during this time, and I always want to encourage you to come and just pray and talk to the Lord, maybe just visibly surrender something over to Him. And so when we have this time of response and we stand and sing this song together, Let's have the courage to say yes to Jesus, yes to what he wants to live Christ-like in our lives. Won't you stand with me? Let me have a quick word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless this time as we sing and worship him. Father, thank you for this time that we have to sing and to worship you. We pray that you'd give us courage now to respond in the ways that you've called us and are leading us to respond to you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Your regrets and mistakes 
Jesus is calling 